0: We'll take your Bibles and let's look at Luke chapter 6 this morning. We are continuing in this great, great study of this uh, time when Jesus was on a hillside and he was preaching to the masses. The ancient city of Sardis was named after a plant, which was obviously indigenous to the area and prolific all over that area of the Middle East and at least around this ancient city. And the, the plant was dangerous because if you took a Sardis plant and ingested it, you would have... According to um, history, you would have a sense of euphoria and um, joy and maybe a sense of well-being, but it was about a minute prior to your death. The plant was deadly poison. And of course, it is fitting that when Jesus wrote letters to the churches in Revelation, he said to the church at Sardis, Revelation 3.1, you have a name that you are alive, but you're dead. That is a sad epitaph for a church. You have a name that you're alive. All kinds of stuff going on. Religious claims. Professions. Claims to follow God. Claims to be doing the activity of God. To be working in the realm of God. To be following after the things of God. Speaking the truth of God. Guiding people in help from God. This is the claim. And you're alive and all those things, but the reality is you're dead. It's not real. It's not authentic. It's not genuine. When Jesus was in his earthly ministry, there were all kinds of people trusting in him, but John chapter 2 says there were some, perhaps at some points many in the crowd, he wasn't entrusting himself to them, no matter what they professed. Why? Because he knew what was in man, the text says. He knows that men like to boast religious things. They like to boast a morality that is better than they are. They like to bring a lot of themselves and add Jesus to their room full of idolatry. And none of it does any moral good. It's destruction. To the church at Laodicea in Revelation 3, 15 to 17, he said, you're neither hot nor cold, but here's what you say. You say, oh, I'm rich. I've become wealthy, I have need of nothing. That's what they said as a ministry. And he says, but you know what the truth is? You don't know that you're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. You're morally bankrupt. You have a claim. You say you want to follow. But it's just words. In the account I read of Matthew's gospel of this portion of the sermon... In verse 22 of Matthew 7, Jesus says, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord. Many will say, we do all kinds of religious activities, you remember? Haven't we done this in your name, and this in your name, and this in your name, and this in your name? And he says, look, depart from me. I don't know you. I don't have an intimate relationship with lawless people. To the Jews in the church at Rome, he wrote in Romans chapter 2, that you have a flurry of religious activity, but... There's no heart change behind it. He would later tell them in chapter 10, they have a zeal for God, but no real knowledge. Religious activity, religious profession, saying you follow this guru or that teacher or this guide, claiming to be a guide and a teacher of others, where you say, I'll counsel you, I'll help you, you have moral needs, I can take care of those things. They were all over the landscape from Israel in its religious elite who claimed to have the answers all the way to the to the back alley shaman. All of them said, I'm your guide. I'll take care of you morally. Follow my words. And so the countryside on that day when Jesus was preaching was filled with people like that. This, this guy's a guru. He, he's healing. He, he's, he's taking care of our economics. He's working the deal for us. He'll be a military power look at how look at how he confounds the religious elite he'll be a theological doctor of ours he'll have all the answers stun all the philosophers and answer all the questions of the day he'll take care of our physical needs he'll feed us meals he'll be our military messiah we follow you they said and jesus said really well the true disciple has particular characteristics and i'm going to just draw that line in the sand so you know which side you're on, because I don't want you to have the form. I want it to be real. I, don't, I want you to know that the root matches the fruit. I want you to know, for sure, who a real, genuine, authentic disciple of Christ is, and separate him out from the teachers who claim it and the followers who are blindly following those teachers. I don't want it to be just the form. Now, I love reading World War II history, and if you read World War II history, there was a Melanesian people, the indigenous natives of those islands, and when the British and the Americans went in there to build airstrips, they just took out jungles, built airstrips, put lights on them, put up a tower, wired it all up, and suddenly planes started landing with food and supplies. And the indigenous people saw that, and they thought, man, we've got to do the same. And in the history, it was a tragic history because they, they chopped out areas in the, in the jungle and they made what they thought was a landing strip and they built fires up along the side of it and they put up a grass and mud and bamboo hut as sort of a tower and they put a native in there. They even put half coconuts on his ears because that's what they saw, the headphones. They did everything they thought to do on the outside. No planes, no supplies, no answers. No help. This is fitting, isn't it? You have a name that you're alive, but you're dead. Active moral conduct, knowledge, teachers, guides, claims to follow God. And Jesus has to deal with this. The crowds were flocking to him and they, they wanted to hear his teaching and they were seeking his power to heal and they were hoping he would be their permanent relief from life's afflictions and he had to cut down the middle of it. And so you remember back when we began the study of Luke in this sermon, verse 20 and following, Jesus gave that principle that a true disciple has a particular moral conviction that is opposite of the world. A true disciple of Christ does not imagine or believe or have the conviction that the things of this life, riches and the avoidance of life's afflictions, will gain you anything in eternity. In fact, you you do a complete shift when you come to Christ. You might have wealth, you might be in the world, but a true Christian goes from loving that and imagining that that's fulfilling to a completely different paradigm. When you're saved, you come to Christ, you know that eternity is all that matters. You know that you could lose everything here and it would be fine if your soul is secure. You could have it all here and know that you should never trust in it because it is nothing. Jesus said, a true disciple has moral convictions that divine favor is all that matters in eternity. It's got to be well with your soul. The second thing we've been studying is that a true disciple has merciful responses to persecution, to enemies, to mistreatment in life, all of life. The true disciple of Christ does not enact vengeance, does not personally go after a pound of flesh and we've seen that over and over again verse 27 to 38 Jesus has been telling us that love reaches out in mercy love extends itself with more for for getting less love does not concern itself with being vulnerable love reaches out to enemies even after that enemy has afflicted you love represents God's gracious nature because that's what God is like he forgives he pardons He reaches to those who hate him. He reaches out in love and grace and mercy to those who have afflicted him. And then we saw last time that love refrains from self-righteousness, which, of course, was introduced in verse 37. Don't judge, you'll not be judged. Do not condemn, you'll not be condemned. Pardon, and you'll be pardoned. Give, what is that? Give compassion in the context. Give pardon, give generously, give uh, magnanimously in your heart toward those even who've hurt you, and it'll be given to you by the same standard that you measure with, others will... Measure it out the same way, and so will God. You're stingy with pardon. You're not going to be experiencing much compassion from God, even as a Christian. And then Jesus is drawing a line in the sand and saying, you claim to follow me? You have to know, I, I pardon my enemies. Are you willing to pardon your enemies? So at each stage of this sermon he keeps setting forth principles that just carve out another group and another group and someone else who doesn't want to really follow christ and someone else who just has a name that they're alive for jesus but they're really just dead inside we come to that third principle in this overarching study of the section and that is that not only does a true disciple have a particular moral conviction and merciful deeds but a true disciple also is manifested in their heart by how they respond to truth. The true disciple's manifest heart gets exposed when confronted with the absolutes of divine truth. In other words, how does a person respond to the very words and commands and authority of Jesus? That's the issue. Don't tell me you want to follow Jesus and then you twist and contort his word. Don't tell me you want to follow Jesus when your life is really all about nuanced, subjective approaches to Scripture. Or you make it gray when it is clear and black and white. Don't don't tell me you want to follow Jesus if he isn't the authority, the absolute authority in your life. Oh, Jesus is my master. Really? Then do you act like a slave of your master? Or do you just spend your days claiming it while crafting an entirely different Lord. And it's all about you. It has Jesus as the label, but it's just you. You're the Lord of your life. A self-Lord. How does Jesus illustrate this? How does he teach it? How does he draw this final line in the sand? Notice verse 39, he gives a simple parable. He opens up this discussion with a simple parable. Verse 39, and he spoke a parable to them. A blind man cannot guide a blind man, can he? Will they not both fall into a pit? Now that seems rather obvious. And Jesus is beginning to prepare the crowd for what he's going to teach them about fruit. This is the final line in the sand, and he begins by putting a mental image into their minds that they will easily grasp and cannot deny or disagree with. I love that. He's a good teacher. He sets the hook. He lays out a parable that's so simple even a child can understand it. You have a blind man and he says he's a guide and a teacher to a crowd. They're all going to become lost and fall into destruction. There's a whole lot of people today claiming to guide people morally, claiming to be counselors, claiming to have answers. There's people in the church who aren't saved. They've never come to Christ. He's not their guide. The Lord isn't their guide. They are a self-guided person, but they come into the church, they learn a little lingo, and they just stand, stand up and say, I'm, I can help you. How are you going to know? Jesus is about to say, how are you going to know? But he sets it up by saying, you, you all can agree with this. If you've got a blind man, and he's leading a bunch of people around, they're all going to fall. Wherever that guy goes, They're going. He has no truth. He has no answers. He can't be a guide, but he's taken a bunch of people with him. Destruction is going to be far greater than it could have been if it had just been him. So a simple parable, and then he follows it up with a very sobering principle. He just extracts out of it this sobering principle. Notice verse 40. And a pupil is not above his teacher, but everyone after he's been fully trained will be like his teacher. All right. Notice what he's done. With the parable, he's talking about blind guides leading blind people. And he's talking in the second, the, the, the principle, about students who fully end up mimicking their teachers. You have this wonderful setup. You must know who the guides are that are just professing to follow the right thing and who, whose heart is not in it. You must know who they are to avoid destruction and to avoid becoming like them. Mimicry. You know, it's a sad thing. People say, oh, I won't be, I won't be susceptible to that. Really? What about discernment? How many times have you seen people who ignore the truth and its clarity? They, they've been around the church. They might even think Jesus is their homeboy And they make those claims. But when you get into their life, you find books they're reading, and you're shocked. You find people they're listening to, and you're stunned. And you find peer groups that they spend time in, and they're not running from that peer group, and that peer group's no good for them. And you find a dating relationship they're in, and they are sunk into that thing. And they claim Jesus and claim his word, but they have no discernment. What is happening? They are mimicking and becoming fully like the guides that they have added to their life. They're not looking at the right thing. They're not examining it the right way. So then, Jesus has given a simple parable, drew them in. He's extracted the related and very sobering principle and now he's, he's going to give this little metaphor that sort of drives the point about self-righteousness and claiming to be a guide but not having the truth. He's going to drive that home with this metaphor. Notice verse 41. Why do you look at the speck that's in your brother's eye but don't notice the log that's in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck out that is in your eye when you yourself don't see the log that's in your own eye? You're a hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye and then you will see, look at this, clearly to take out the speck that's in your brother's eye. There it is. What is Jesus doing? He's saying, there are all kinds of people standing on hillsides claiming to be your guides. You must discern because many of them are blinded by their own self-will and self-righteousness. And they're claiming to tell the rest of you, follow me. In Israel, it was the Jewish elite. And they were saying, we have the law. We know God. Follow us. And Jesus kept saying, they're hypocrites. They're blind guides. Don't follow them. There were gurus all over the land in various sects and various religious movements and various secular movements and zealous movements and political movements and all kinds of people were choosing their movement. And Jesus is saying, really? Are their leaders humble or self-righteous? Are they worshiping me or are they worshiping self? Do they follow the truth or are they trafficking in their own thoughts generated from their own well and putting it over the top of you? A self-righteous person foolishly imagines that they can help other people with their moral weakness. But they can't. They have a name that they have answers and that they're alive, but they're dead. They have no answers. It's destruction. There's no moral help in it. No real moral security. No real answer. And they don't even realize it. Listen to how Jesus said it We wouldn't know this unless Matthew recorded it, but he just calls them out. Matthew 7, 15, Beware of the false prophets. This is a section of the sermon where he's saying, Quit following blind guides and follow me. And don't just say you're following me. Listen to me. I'm going to tell you how to tell the difference. Beware the false prophets and false teachers because they come to you in sheep's clothing. Do you honestly think that they're going to show their fangs? Those people in your peer group are telling you they have answers. they're not going to show their fangs." Those antagonists and agnostics and atheists who come along in the pop psychology movement and say, "We have answers that are outside of the Bible, they're not going to show their fangs." Those people that come to you and say, "I can answer the philosophical questions," and um, I can tell you how the universe was made. It's not found in the Bible. They're not going to show you their fangs. It's going to be sweetness and cream. They're wolves. And in fact, Matthew describes them as ravenous wolves. It is a term that means savage. They will shred you in an instant. And behind them is Satan. Satan hates you if you're following Christ in a genuine, authentic relationship with him. And anybody who attaches himself... To this ministry at GIBC, walks in that door and could hear the truth and could hear the gospel. Satan knows you're here and he wants to shred you because he's a ravenous wolf. He doesn't care about you or your life or your kids or your grandkids. And so Jesus has to draw this line in the sand. Inwardly, these people are ravenous wolves. You'll know them by their fruits. Notice how Luke puts it here. Notice how he puts it. And he's speaking here about the fruit betraying the root. The fruit exposes or betrays the root. Verse 43, For there is no good tree which produces bad fruit, nor on the other hand a bad tree which produces good fruit. I love this, because now we're getting down to erasing the gray and moving right into the black and white. The first thing Jesus does here is teaches us that the roots don't lie if you're superficial in your following of this book or that teacher or this guide or this way of life, if, you're, if you don't think carefully through the gospel, if you got in by some superficial message, maybe you attended some church and somebody sort of slid you in, oozed you into the kingdom, if you didn't pay careful attention and didn't look at the roots, you're, you're potentially missing something because the roots don't lie, Jesus said. There's a black and whiteness to it. Notice how he says it. There is no good tree which produces bad fruit, nor on the other hand a bad tree which produces good fruit. None. There's no half-breed in the authentic work of following Jesus. Smoke indicates a fire, to put it in a different analogy. And verse 44 clarifies it again. Each tree is known by its fruit. What does he mean? The fruit is identifiable. It's knowable. You can get clarity. You don't have to worry. Yes, they're deceptive. Yes, as they come as angels of light. But you have a fulcrum. You have a watershed. It is the scripture. And there will be a fruit-bearing moment when you're exposed to something when you're exposed to that fruit-bearing moment, it is in that moment that the Scriptures become critical. They become so important in evaluating the fruit and the behavior. Notice how Jesus puts it in verse 44. Men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they pick grapes from a briar bush. You got a guy who plants something with a seed, then when harvest time comes, he comes and expects to find the fruit of that root. If he comes and finds something different, he knows a mistake has been made. He knows the wrong seed has been planted. He, he can expect that if he plants this seed and comes, it will bear a particular fruit that is germane to that seed. Beloved, the implication is this. This isn't something gray. It's not great. Even if you and I don't know the heart the way God sees it, Jesus gives the people on the hillside a way to evaluate themselves and every teacher who comes along and and pretends to have a gospel, a moral help. Jesus says, look, it's black and white. There are no half-breeds. It is knowable and identifiable. And where there is the seed of the gospel, you can expect a particular fruit. Expect it. Not at your level. I don't expect it at my level. I don't look at somebody's life and say, boy, they're they're not living up to my expectations. It isn't about me. It's about Scripture. Sometimes people will say, you're judging us. If personally I were taking vengeance upon someone in some self-righteousness, you would see it in the fruit of my life. But if I take someone's life and say, Listen, here's what the scriptures say that following Jesus must look like. It isn't a judgment from me. It isn't a judgment from human origin. It's a black and white, knowable, identifiable, seed-to-fruit relationship. The roots don't lie. And the fruit is identifiable. It can be known, he says in verse 44. And then he adds verse 45. The good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good. The evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil. For his mouth speaks from that which fills the heart. What is he saying here? The heart is the control center. What you see on the outside traces back to what is on the inside in the control center of one's life. I have heard so many times in the excuse-making culture in which we live, oh, I know that person lives this way and I know they talk like this, but I know their heart. Their heart is basically good. I mean, well, it's nice sentiment. I'm glad you feel that way. I would like to feel that way because I want friends. I don't want to be the only guy. But that's not the point. Jesus makes the point here that the heart is the control center, so what you see on the outside indicates something. And you know what? (laughs) As Christians, we already know that, don't we? All right, you're going along in your Christian life, you love Christ, you've repented of your sin, you're saved, there is freedom of conscience because you're not condemned, but you know that the Bible calls you to live a certain way. And because of weakness and besetting sin, we get entangled in things. And when you get entangled in something... And you don't repent of it. And there is greater weakness. And your conscience is burdening you. And you don't come to the Word of God for clarity. You start to pull away from it. And a friend comes along and says, you know, you used to really come toward the light and toward the Word. And you're starting to separate yourself. You already know as a Christian that something's wrong. It doesn't mean they're not saved. It means you need to bring out the scriptures and warn them. Because something is wrong. Proverbs 18.1, he who separates himself, seeks his own desire, and quarrels against all sound wisdom. Listen, as a pastor on a staff of shepherds at this church, we see it all the time. Someone is in the flock, in the Bible study, and then all of a sudden, we haven't seen them in two or three weeks. We make a phone call. We don't get a call back. We leave a message. We don't hear anything. We see them at a store, and they turn the other way and go down aisle seven as we're walking toward them. What's wrong? I don't know, but something is. I don't know specifically what it is, but something's not right. So even as Christians, we understand this principle that Jesus is laying out. He is saying the control center is identifiable as to where it stands by your outward response to truth and your mouth, what you say. If you're trying to guide other people, and you have an ideology of life, and it comes out of your mouth at work, and it comes out of your mouth among your peer group, does it represent scripture and represent truth in all of its clarity? If not, something is wrong in your life. If you're following a teacher, and they speak things out, and you're not careful, and listening carefully, you're going to miss the fact that sometimes... They're twisting scripture and they're subjective and they're mystical and they're murky. And you can look at their life because if you want to see what's in the heart, you look at how they respond to divine truth. Notice the good man out of the good treasury. It is a term, it is a word group that describes the source, the storehouse. So whatever the man's thoughts are, whatever the woman's motives are, whatever a human being's inside life, affections, desires, reasonings, convictions, emotions, will, the, the things that are on the inner life, you cannot avoid seeing them inevitably on the outside if you look close enough. Sure, there's deception. Sure. Pharisees are proof of it. But when... The people heard the Pharisees teach. They didn't listen close enough. They didn't watch their life. They didn't say, "Hey, you say you follow the law of God, but over here, you, you're unmerciful. You tell us to follow the law of God in tithing to the nation and giving the taxes to the nation in coming and mint and dill and part of our crops, but over here, you're not faithful, you're not loving. You neglect all these weightier things that are, that are already in the law of God. Something's not matching up. you're not going to be my teacher. Why do you think when someone's aspiring to the office of overseer, the Bible outlines what should be the character of the leaders of God's people? I mean, it is a massive and daunting responsibility to be standing here and opening the word of God to you. But you have a daunting responsibility. You are to watch our lives. If what comes out of My preaching and your Bible study leader comes from the Word of God. You can see it there. You walk through it. It rings true because you know it represents and reflects Christ. It honors Him. It dignifies Him. It is clear from the text. You see it in the context. He's careful to show it to you. He doesn't show it to you a little bit and then close it. He doesn't give you a little bit of subjectivity and tell you not to look any further. He doesn't want you to glance at it, but He wants you to dig in. If that's the case, you're on good ground. You watch their lives and you check it out. How do they respond to Christ? How do they respond to his word? They're not perfect. None of us are perfect, but there's a, there is a, an, a, a, no way you can legitimately question a pattern of unrepentance and lack of submission to the lordship of Christ. That should not be documentable. If it is, that's not your guru, that's not your teacher, that's not representing Christ. Because something's wrong in the heart. When I hear some pastor just muse on a theme rather than teach the scriptures, something's wrong with that. When I hear someone who pretends to be a spiritual leader and they have a foul mouth or undignified speech, something is wrong with that. Because out of the heart comes The representation of whether they're genuine or not. The storehouse of the inner life. The fruit betrays the root. Always. When you examine the life of a person who claims to have truth or set themselves up as a peer guru or a teacher, ask yourself this how do they treat the scriptures? Are they careful with the truth, submissive to the truth, humble in light of the truth? trembling at the truth do they teach what is clear and obvious from the text are they submissive in their attitude are they consistently striving to live what they teach and not expecting to put burdens on you that they don't even lift a finger to do do their attitudes reflect the lord jesus do they live in such a way that they have an obvious hatred for sin and anything that offends christ How do they respond to the people of God? Is there mercy and love and forgiveness, the attitudes of Christ, the behavior of Christ? All of us striving in our weakness together for those things. And Jesus finishes this sermon, and we don't don't have a whole lot more time, but he finishes it by telling us that judgment is gonna tell the whole story. The life you've built, the claims you've made, the people you've influenced, the way of life you've followed, the judgment is going to tell the whole story in the end. Notice what Jesus does here. Verse 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you do not do what I say? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words. Now, he's talking to them on the hillside. They're implicated. There it is. I've come to him. I want to hear his word. Did he, just, he included all of us. Everyone who comes to me. They were coming to him for healing and all the things we talked about earlier. So they're on the hillside and he just said, everyone who comes to me. So now they know they are involved in what he's about to say. Everyone who comes and wants to hear from me. You listen to Jesus' sermon on that hillside, you're included in about what, he, what he's about to say. You come and you want me. You come and you listen to me. But you don't do what I say. Now, that makes Jesus exclusive. He didn't say, you don't do the law of God. He didn't say, you don't follow the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He didn't say, all of you have come to me and you hear me. You're not following the leaders in Jerusalem. He didn't say that. You come to me and you want to hear me, and you don't do what I say. I mean, he's setting himself up as the absolute teacher and authority in their life, the standard. And everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts on them. I'll show you what he's like. He's like a man building a house and he dug down deep or literally he continued to work hard until he was deep or hit rock. That's the implication. He laid a foundation on the rock And man, the flood occurred and the torrent exploded against that house and it couldn't shake it. It had been well built. Matthew's gospel says, the winds blew, the rains fell, the floods came and slammed against that house and it didn't fall. It had been founded on the rock. What is happening here? Well, notice first of all that a profession is not a key to the kingdom. Why do you call me Lord, Lord? Remember Matthew's account? Many of you will say, Lord, Lord, I did this. this." A profession is not a key to the kingdom. Eternal destiny isn't determined by what comes out of your mouth. The authority is not with you. People say, oh, I'm saved. I just know it. Well, that's nice, but there's no authority in that. Oh, I I have assurance. I just know in my heart I'm a Christian. That's wonderful sentiment, but it's just inward. It's not not an authoritative testimony because it's a self-testimony if you have a clear conscience according to scripture, now we're talking. If you can show that your that what comes out of your mouth is connected to the storehouse of your heart and it's all about exalting Christ and all about loving his word and all about praising and adoring and all about behaving with your mouth in a way that reflects him, now we're talking. So profession is not a key to the kingdom. I think the Gallup poll now is over 75% of People in this country claim to be a Christian. Really? Wow. How do you talk and how do you live? Notice also what he says here then. He gives an analogy. Two houses. One is building a house, listen, in in effort and no superficiality. Digging down deep, he... he He's taking his time. That doesn't mean he doesn't rush to Christ. What it means is he's careful about what he's hearing. Someone else says, I'm your guru. I'm your Messiah. Don't follow him. Take your time. Evaluate the life and the speech of this guide and this teacher. Your peer group says, oh, look, you don't need that. Uh, You know, you need a little bit of this and a little bit of that. Listen, take your time. Dig down deep. There's a rock there that is Christ. If you don't find Christ but you you find a pseudo-Christ and it ends up being your peer group, what are you going to do in the judgment? When the rains of judgment come, what are you going to do? Well, my friends told me. Well, my teacher at university told me. Well, that father-in-law told me. Well, my uncle told me. Well, that church told me. You get no leniency because you didn't dig down deep to find the rock. You must go find Christ. In the end, he's the one that draws you, but he's there. He offers himself, but it comes in a way that you must come through the narrow gate. You jettison you. There, you don't bring anything about yourself and self-exaltation. All that goes by the wayside, then you've found Christ. You bring something through that turnstile, your baggage, your self-exaltation, your self-righteousness, you don't get Christ. You don't. And You can call him Lord, Lord all you want, but in the end, Beloved, you're going to be without what you must have. And that rain and flood and torrent is going to slam against your profession. And your house built on sand is going down. But those who are in Christ, in this life, you could bring weeds and thistles and Persecution and trouble and storm and even the throne of God in judgment and your house isn't going to fall because it is built upon the rock from hard looking at the truth. No superficial presentations of Christ. It wasn't built easy. It came by cost and sacrifice, not of your works, but by the death of self and embracing Christ alone. By faith. That's how it came. Verse 49, But the one who has heard and has not acted accordingly is like a man who built a house on the ground without any foundation. The torrent burst against it, and immediately it collapsed. There was no contest. The ruin of that house was great. You know what that implies? Generations. Not just your own soul lost at the judgment But before you took your last breath and went to meet God at the judgment, you had influenced with your faulty sand-built house a host of your children and grandchildren with the same thing. You became the guru of others. And they built houses in your housing track. And it's all on sand. It's nothing. How tragic. If you're sitting here today... And you're thinking, I'm standing on that hillside, Pastor. And I'm saying, I I have followed Jesus, or I have been interested in Jesus, or I have listened to Jesus, or I have listened to sermons about Jesus, or I have followed my father who knew Jesus, or I have listened to my grandmother who knew Jesus. You've got to ask yourself today, right now, have you been superficial in your claim. Have you bought any and every version of this but Christ's? And you must come back to what Jesus says today on that hillside. Eternity is all that matters, not this stuff of this life. Man, if you know you love the world in your heart and mind, then bring it before the scriptures and say, Lord, is that is that because I'm not real? I'm not calling true Christians to doubt their real assurance. The scriptures and this sermon call false professors to not trust in a false assurance. That's the issue. We're not trying to take a true believer's real assurance away. You can have it. What are your words and what is your life? You say, but I don't always obey Christ and I don't always speak about Christ and I have worldliness in my life and all those things. Yes, but do you repent of it and run to Christ? There's your fruit. The roots don't lie. Out of the storehouse of a repentant heart that has been saved by Christ come this speech that runs to him in prayer, comes a life that runs to him in repentance and seeks his grace once again. Absolutely. You're not saved again, but you're restored to sweet fellowship as a Christian. And assurance comes from that. There's no greater assurance in the Christian life than Christ. And therefore, there can be no greater assurance than being drawn to him in repentance and faith. Even as a Christian, I'm drawn to Christ in repentance and faith. Once again, my faith is strengthened. My repentance is renewed when I get tangled up in sin. And I know, once again, the joy of my salvation. But if that's not you, you're all about a Jesus that you've been crafting over time and your friends have been crafting and some teacher's been crafting and some book you read or whatever. Whatever. And you haven't put it up against the black and white, noble fruit of Scripture. And when the Scriptures are taught, you, you'd rather have it vague and you don't really want to look at it. And you've got to ask yourself the question, is my Christian life authentic? Am I an authentic follower of Christ? That's what Jesus was doing that day. He was separating out the masses. You say you want me? then why do you call me Lord? And you don't do what I say. You say you're alive, but you're like Sardis. A little euphoria, a sense of well-being, and then spiritually you don't stand in the judgment. Father, thank you for this morning and this final crescendo and exclamation point on this sermon. This is gospel rich. And Lord, for everyone here who's in Christ, who's ever doubted their salvation and who's ever wondered because of practicing sin and weakness in our life, I pray that you'd give them that strength and encouragement to go to your word and go to you and come back to the joy of their salvation because you will give them the strength to overcome those things if they come to the truth, come to the light just like they did in salvation. But Lord, so many, even in this room, may be like so many on that hillside that day. And maybe they started to pack up their things, getting ready to walk away because the Jesus preaching that day, the only living and true God, the only Messiah, was offering them something that their heart didn't want. Lord, I pray that, that we would look at the fruit of our lives, and not be discouraged as those in Christ, but be hopefully drawn to you, hope-filled, and coming to you by faith and repentance. And I pray that today this wonderful teaching that Jesus gave would shatter any pretense and self-righteousness and foolish form of of religion, that you'd mercifully save, that people would repent and believe. Lord, we love you. We seek to adore you. Help us see the clarity of these things. Guide and lead us as our only Lord and Master. We pray it in your wonderful name, your sovereign name, your saving name. Amen. Amen.